written from God's holy word this morning comes from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 8, and you'll notice just one verse this morning, verse 27 of Daniel chapter 8. If you will, give attention to the reading of God's holy word. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, now as we give our attention to this one verse of Scripture today, we acknowledge that we need your help, we need your spirit to be present to us, we need you to open up our minds and our hearts as we seek to apply what it is that we've learned for the last several weeks from this glorious prophet. Please, by your grace, be present to us, bring to fruition your plans and ultimate aims for us in this hour that we might indeed receive the blessing that you've intended for us. So right now, please, Lord, grant your spirit in tremendous measure and let us behold the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, it is a change of pace to jump into one verse This morning, after the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, we've been tackling large swaths of prophetic and apocalyptic literature. For the last two weeks, Daniel 7 and uh, Daniel 8, it really has been a a joy for me to dig in deeply to these visions, and I appreciate the attentiveness of so many of you within the congregation working through those detailed passages I appreciate the way in which the Lord seems to be working uh, in our midst as we've been giving our attention uh, to his scriptures. One verse today is at the end of our passage last week. We really didn't touch on this particular verse. It is an unusual verse because it gives to us Daniel's response to, in many ways, the grisly, even gruesome vision that he's just seen in chapter 8, this vision, if you might recall, of a, of a ram with two horns. One horn that came up a little higher than the other horn was staggered kind of behind it, represented a nation. And then as this ram was prancing about in three different directions, advancing as it were, just however he pleased, a, a goat came from the west. A goat that was running so quickly that its hooves didn't seem to even be touching the ground. This goat had a single horn and it gored the ram, killing it, ultimately trampling the ram. And then the horn of the goat broke in this fierce clash. And three other, four other, excuse me, horns arose in the midst of that great clash and then a fifth horn, one that was described as a little horn, raised up in the midst of the goat. And we studied that little horn for some 
detail because it waged incredible battle against God's people, Israel. And we were struck by the violence of Daniel chapter 8, by the gruesomeness of what it was that was portrayed and the fact that God's people are the object of attack. And Daniel was struck by that. Now, those of you who weren't here, I know you're really sad to have missed all of that last week. Now that you had me run through it just briefly here, but there is a recording. You can, you can get it. We are focusing now upon what do you do with all of that? Because we said last week that there were several takeaways that were clear from Daniel chapter 8. The, the first is this. We need to prepare to face persecution for following Jesus. It's really clear. Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, those who are going to follow Christ are going to very often find themselves opposed to those in the world and there will be, as is pictured in Daniel, a clashes, conflicts that will ensue. We have to prepare for the reality of persecution. We said secondly that we have to prepare for our enemies to even prevail over us for a time. This was something that struck Daniel, especially in Daniel chapter 7, as he saw the battles and the clashes that were taking place, and he saw that the world was winning over the people of God. That if you could see it with human eyes, it just appeared as if they were way more victorious than the people of God were. And this indeed, we're told in the prophetic literature, this is going to be the case at times, that the world will prevail over us. Which is why, thirdly, we have to set our mind on the heavenly courtroom. We have to set our focus on the end of time, the great white throne judgment, when all is known and everything is brought to right through the power of God himself. And we have to rest, fourthly, in the redemption of the Son of Man. This Christ, this Savior who comes on the clouds and who comes to receive his people and redeem his people. He was the one who received judgment for us. On the cross, he is our substitution. He is the one who stood in our place and received the wrath of God. And those who are in Christ can rest in his redemption. And then finally we said, in all of these truths, what do we do with them? Well, we run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So we look to him. We consider him. We let his, the vision of, of himself and his kingdom just occupy the head and the heart space of our lives as we walk through difficulties here. Now, each of those five takeaways, to be quite honest, are a sermon in and of themselves. They, they really are. And I don't want to take time to work through them in depth because we're going to get to touch on some of these things as we go through Daniel. But I think we need to pause and we need to ask the question, how do we run the race that is set before us in light of what we've seen in Daniel 7 and 8? What does that mean for us? And what this means is that we're situating in this text for the purpose of really doing application today. Um, we've done some significant exposition over the last couple of weeks, and we've lodged some remarkable truths into our own hearts by it. Now, what does it mean to live out these things? What does it mean applicationally to, to run this race that is set before us? And what are some of the practical takeaways that we need to receive in order to do that well, well, to do this, I want to take a particular tack. I want to think about with you in, under three points from this verse 
Daniel chapter 8, verse 27, Daniel's response, and I want you to see, despite the fact that it might not look like much of an example to follow, I think it is. I think Daniel 8, 27 is actually giving us a picture of what running the race looks like. And I think that the Lord, by His Spirit, might open our eyes to glimpse that. And so one of these three points, I want you to, I want you to feel this rhythm. We're going to think, we're going to feel, and we're going to do. All right? So we're just going to require to run this race. There's going to be things that we're going to need to think about. There's some things that we're really going to need to feel. And there's some things that we're going to need to, to do. In terms of point one and thinking, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to learn to be honest about what it is that we know. And we're going to have to learn to be honest about what it is that we don't know. Because that's how gospel character is built. All right? Under feeling, point two, we're going to have to learn to enter the suffering of others and take it, as it were, upon ourselves. For this is the way of gospel love. And thirdly, in the doing, we're going to have to do the king's business because this is the daily mission of the gospel's call. All right, so we're going to look at those three together. Think, feel, and do. Those little sub titles that I gave you to kind of help flesh this out a little bit, which means this is a little bit of a different tone, tone for me, a little bit different approach. We'll slow it down. We'll try to get into our hearts a little bit and ask the Spirit to lead. Let's start with this think. We have to be honest about what we know and what we don't know because this builds gospel character. Now, to be quite honest, I'm sympathetic with Daniel in this passage. When I see how the way he responded here in verse 27, I think, of course, and especially when I see this language of overcome, lay sick, appalled, and did not understand. We don't understand. There's so many things about this we don't understand. We're 1,500 years removed from Daniel 8, and scholars still wrestle about what it means. You know, we didn't even talk about those 2,300 mornings and evenings and a time and a half time and a time. Do you notice I skipped over that? Yeah, I don't know what it means. I have no idea what it means. Apparently, I'm not alone in that, so I'm comfortable with that fact. This vision is confusing. There are things that I know. There are things that we can know. There are things that we see. But then there are things that we don't see, things that we don't know, things that remain mysterious. And I am sympathetic to Daniel in this, but I must admit it's a little strange saying that I'm sympathetic to Daniel because, let's admit, Daniel is Mr. Dream Vision Interpreter Extraordinaire. I mean, remember Daniel 2 and the dream with Nebuchadnezzar and none of the wise men could interpret it but Daniel? You remember the vision of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? And, and then Daniel unfolding it in all of its glory before Nebuchadnezzar? You, you remember in Daniel 5 when Belshazzar has that weird hand that writes on the wall and nobody can interpret it, but of course the queen mother remembers? There was this one man in the courtroom of Nebuchadnezzar years ago, and if we bring him in here, he can solve anything. And of course, Daniel didn't let us down. And then Daniel doesn't get it. It's, it's really the strangest thing in the world. Apparently, if you have a vision, Daniel's your guy. But if Daniel has a vision, Daniel is not the guy. He doesn't get what God brings to him, but he gets what God brings to others. That's ironic when you look at this passage. Now, I think there's probably a lot of truth in there. I won't spend long at it other than to make this just this little application is that it's often easier to help others than it is to help yourself. 
It's being quite honest about that. I'll admit to you there are times where I give advice to people and we're working on gospel things together and we're weeping together and I think, that's such a beautiful truth. That's so wonderful. The Lord is working. And 30 minutes later, I'm going through a crisis because I'm not following my own instruction. I know I'm alone in that, in this room. Probably the only one who deals with that, right? No, we all do. In fact, it's part of God's graciousness that He often requires there be other people in our lives to tell us the things that we know, but we can't get them into our hearts. We need help. We need each other in that. I think Daniel here is in some ways being humbled. I mean, we have an archangel, Gabriel, who comes and says, you know what, I'm going to tell you the vision. And we're actually told that Gabriel is to make Daniel understand it. I mean, it's a strong charge, make Daniel understand it. And after Gabriel's done, Daniel still doesn't understand it. So apparently he's pretty thick-skulled at this point, having angelic interpreters and all kinds of helps to be able to get there, and he just doesn't quite get it. And here's the realization is there are things that Daniel understands from this vision, and there are things that Daniel doesn't understand from this vision. We're told at the beginning of Daniel chapter 10 that he actually understands this vision. We're told at the end of Daniel 8 he doesn't understand this vision. So which is it? Yep. There are things he gets, and there are things he doesn't get. Kind of like you and me. There are things that we know, and there are things that we don't know. The, the Bible says that. Don't take my word for it. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. But the things which He has revealed belong to you and to your children forever. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And it's, we could say, well, yes, they're revealed in the Word, but don't you also need the Holy Spirit to reveal it to your heart? It's one thing to know it, like a catechism answer, or like a memorized Bible verse. It's another thing for that truth to lodge away in your heart transformatively. You need the Holy Spirit to do that work. You need help in that. Now, this is the reality of all of our lives. There are things that we know and there are things that we don't know. And this is actually the core of how God both gives us confidence and humility. Confidence and humility. That's how he builds that kind of character within us. Let me give you an example of how this works. Jesus says in John 16, it's in keeping with where we've been here in Daniel 8. In this life, he says, you will have trouble. That's what Jesus says. In this life you will have trouble. Now I hope that you hear that and think it's firm. That's true. I can stand on that. Bank on it. You're going to have trouble in this life. But now there's a lot of things that that verse raises that doesn't bed back down. A lot of things that you and I are pretty, pretty concerned about. So, so for instance, it doesn't tell us what sort of trouble we're going to have doesn't tell us when this trouble is going to come. doesn't tell us how bad the trouble is going to be in terms of its degree. doesn't tell us if the trouble is going to be ultimately satisfied. There are a tremendous amount of things we don't know. But here's what we know. Trouble's coming. And it'd probably surprise you when it comes. And it'll... And you're probably not prepared. But it'll be God's way of preparing you. That's probably how it's going to go. 
in this life, you will have trouble. And there's a whole lot of things about that you don't know. Is that cancer? Maybe. Is that a child leaving the faith? Could be. Is it a marriage falling apart? Is it a loss of a job? I don't know. All of the above? In this life, there'll be trouble. And there's all kinds of things we don't know about that. But then notice where Jesus takes us. Some of you know this verse by heart. He says, in the latter half of that verse, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, what's Jesus doing there? Well, he's giving us truth that creates confidence, and he's leaving a whole bunch of stuff in mystery. He's saying on the front end, I want you to know this. I don't want you to be surprised, though. You're probably going to be surprised. Trouble's going to come your way. Like, it's going to happen. Difficulty. Now, I don't know when it's going to come. don't know how it's going to come. I'm not going to tell you any of that. That's going to be in the area of mystery. And you're going to need a lot of faith to deal with that. But it's okay. I've overcome the world. Now, if you've been really pacing with me through that, your, your own heart, if we're just in it in the moment together, one is, like there's going to be trouble. <sighs> okay, guys, get ready. Okay, that's kind of how our hearts kind of want to respond in that moment. Okay, I'm banking on it. Jesus said it's probably going to happen. Better get ready. Now, I don't know when it's going to come. Don't know how it's going to come. Don't know how it's going to be relieved. Where are we? Anxiety. Take heart. Have we overcome the world? What's this? peace. All right? Now, in that, with the mysteries, with the things that we don't really know here, we are called to be humble. Called to be humble. In these things, we're called to be confident. These things, we're called to be confident. This is absolute revealed truth. It belongs to you, Deuteronomy 29. This stuff right here, he has scripted, but you don't know about it. You're going to find out about it on the fly. You notice how much of life is on the fly? Yeah, a lot of it. He really believes in this faith thing. Like trusting things you don't see. Believing in things. He's really it's critical to the Lord. And so you've got to be honest about what you know, and you've got to be honest about you don't, what you don't know because it creates gospel character. And that's actually what's being forged here for Daniel. There's a kind of principled adaptability, if we can put it that way. We're resting in something that is clearly revealed, but we are able to adapt and move and grow and adjust as need be as providence unfolds. Right? It's really important. Something's firm and something's flexible in terms of the character that's actually developed around the gospel. Now, this works at a very practical level. I just want to note a couple of things here. You've probably noticed that the Bible is silent on many things that, you really, that are really important to you. It just doesn't say a whole lot on them. Um, think of these, for instance. Picking a spouse. Raising a child. Picking a career. And how to live out that career. Now, it says things about each of these, but it doesn't say a lot. It doesn't, it doesn't really say the things that, to be quite honest, our ears itch for. Let's take picking a spouse, for instance. Does the Bible say something about picking a spouse? 
it does. It says, make sure that he or she is a Christian. Any questions? <laughs> lots of questions. Like, like, lots of questions. It says, make sure he or she is a Christian. It also says, what, when do you marry them? Well, in 1 Corinthians, it says, if you're having difficulty controlling yourself physically with each other, you should probably get married. It doesn't, like, doesn't doesn't tell you to finish college? Be sure you got a good career before you make that move. It doesn't say any of those things. It just just doesn't. It leaves it very open. As you get into marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, it tells you there's roles, it tells you there's responsibilities, and essentially it says the gospel is the key. The gospel is the key for how this is going to work. If both partners wake up every day saying, I'm willing to lay my life down for the best interest of the other, it'll probably go pretty well. You'll probably have a pretty good marriage. Thanks. You know what I mean? Like It's just not a lot. Now, I want, you, I want you to see, I want you to see there's no discussion of personality differences. Um, there's, no, there's no discussion of communication styles, no guidance on how to deal with the family history baggage that you will be lugging into this marriage. There's no discussion of how to identify your spouse's love language. These are the mysteries of the relationship. They really are. You know what? You will learn about them. And it'll probably be hard. And you're probably going to need that gospel piece in Ephesians 5. I mean, you know this very well. A Christian man gets married to a beautiful Christian woman. He commits to love her as Christ loved the church, made vows in front of the church that he'll never be able to fulfill. And he lays his life down for her. And so he washes the dishes at night and he takes out the trash and he helps her because he's a doer so he helps her and that's what he understands will mean so much to her and it's really strange to him in a few months when she musters the courage as a young bride to say I just really don't feel very loved in our relationship what you don't feel, what you don't feel I mean I take out the trash I I washed the dishes. I even, I even hung up that rack you told me to. I know it took a week, but I did it, and it's in the closet, and I got my shoes. You know, putting my shoes away now, my socks, they're not strung out all over the bed anymore. You remember all that? You remember all this stuff that I did? And it just so happens that she is an extrovert, verbal processor, who primarily receives love through quality of time and words of affirmation. He has no idea of this. But he will learn. He will learn. Now, what are, we, what are we talking about? We're talking about growth. We say, love her as Christ loves the church. That's going to look different in the variety of ways that this unfolds. In fact, it tells us to love her in, in an understanding way. And it lets a lot of mystery kind of lie in that. Just kind of sitting there on the text. And it'll take most of your life to figure that out. There's truth and there's mystery. But you know what? It's okay. You're going to essentially mess those things up. But it's okay because why? Because Ephesians 5 is true. That husband can come back and he thought he was doing everything right. He was, oh, he was loving it in the only way that he knew to love at that particular point. But now he, now he learns 
the grace of confession and repentance. Now he learned, learns that he, he didn't understand his wife and he thought loving looked one way other than another way and he's going to have to learn a lot. And that's okay. He's going to have to repent a lot. But that's okay because the gospel is true. Do you see what I'm doing? I'm taking what we know to be true and I'm shedding light on the mysteries. I'm taking the things that are going to be difficult and challenging and changing circumstances and I'm saying, Lord, give me confidence in what you've revealed. Give me humility in what I don't know. Create within me a non-defensive learner spirit that is willing to quickly admit and return and continue to grow into the knowledge that I'm going to need for the rest of my life. Now, I think you see Daniel here in this passage actually experiencing that. He understands the vision. He doesn't understand the vision. There are things that he gets. There are things that he doesn't get. There are things in the years following this that he'll understand better than he does now. You know, sometimes we think, I just need to spend time with older people who have a lot of wisdom. And that's exactly right. They have lived long enough to make more mistakes than you. They can help. They really can help. And for Daniel, he's becoming that older person in this point in the text. Now, secondly, we don't just think honesty about what we know and what we don't know because it builds this gospel character of confidence and humility, a learner and growing spirit. It's honest and non-defensive. But there's something we've got to feel too. We've got to feel this. We've got to enter into the suffering of others because this is the way of gospel love. This is the way of gospel love. And when I talk about discipleship, I sometimes call this good grief. Good grief. And I don't mean that in the Charlie Brown sort of way. The kind of exasperated good grief. But in the kind of grief that is good. The kind of sorrow that is right. Or even the kind of sickness that is a sign of health. That's actually, I believe, what Daniel is experiencing here in this passage. Where am I getting that? We'll look at Daniel 8.27 again. You'll see another aspect of his response. We're told that he's appalled and he's overwhelmed. He's appalled and he's overwhelmed. Now he's overwhelmed not simply because he just saw in sort of 3D technicolor this vision, but he's, he's overwhelmed and the overwhelmed is qualified by the appalled. It's, he's aghast at something and what he's, what he's aghast at is what it is that he's seen, the judgment of God's people. He's come face to face with the fact that for centuries, the people of God are going to be oppressed, they're going to be enslaved, they're going to be under pagan rulers, kings and kingdoms, and his dream for quick deliverance is gone. His hope that this was going to be a quicker turnaround has been finished. He's not even going to see it. Now, in this particular moment, we see why it is that his body and his soul, in a very real sense, is shattered. Take for a minute, if the Lord showed you your children and all that they're going to go through, or your grandchildren and all that they're going to go through over the next 10 to 20 years, particularly the difficult things, some of us in our naivety say, oh, I wish I could know that. No, you don't. No, you don't. You would walk through life paralyzed. Is this the moment? Is, it gonna, is that going to happen? You would walk around with this increased knowledge that would actually be captivating, probably bondage for you. It's why the Lord 
doesn't tell us everything all at once. He's kind in that way. Daniel has just seen that with regards to the people of God. Now he walks out of his room and he looks out at people who are working and he goes, they'll never be free. It'll only get worse for them. They're going to move from one king to the next, the people that he loves. Now I guarantee you, if that happened to you, you'd go to bed for six days too. You would feel the weight of this. One commentator actually says that Daniel felt within his own body the effect of the coming judgment of God on the community. Daniel felt in his own body the coming judgment of God for the community. Now, some of you know what this feels like because you, you know what it's like to hurt so bad for another. You know what it's like to, to be in that place where you are actually taking up the burden and the weight and the difficulty and the suffering of someone else. That's exactly the experience that we see here with Daniel. And in some ways we see this in the prophets significantly. They do not simply speak the message of God, but they often inhabit the message of God. What do I mean by this? Well, Ezekiel, for instance... He journeyed out of Israel and lived in the wilderness to signify the fact that the people of God would soon do that. Uh, Jeremiah put a yoke about his shoulders and walked around the kingdom of God, signifying that the people of God were going to go into bondage. Hosea married a prostitute to signify to represent what it was like for Yahweh to be married to his people Israel. The prophets actually didn't just speak, but they inhabited. They actually encountered the realities of the truth of which they spoke. And Daniel, in this particular case, seems to, in a very real sense, taking on within his own body the burdens that are forthcoming for the people of God. He is experiencing them, as it were, ahead of time. Now, I think there's tons of lessons that we can learn from this, but I think one of the key ones for our time is that as believers engaging in the world, we are called not merely to lob condemnation grenades to the world, but we are called to personally identify with and involve ourselves in the lives of others. So much so that we literally bear each other's burdens as Christ has borne ours. Now think about that. I don't know about you, but as I look at the cross, it doesn't feel like a cakewalk. When he bore our burdens, he was shattered in body and soul. He took up the very realities of what it was that we were to experience. And that becomes the model for the way in which we are to involve our lives in the spiritual, emotional, physical weight and realities of one another's lives. Now, we're going to need a lot of wisdom in that. But that seems to be the call that we're seeing here. And we know that healing really comes through that. You know what it is like to sit across the table from someone who weeps with you who weeps. You know what it is like to be in a living room to rejoice with those who rejoice. And you can tell they're genuinely rejoicing in your joy. And you know the kind of healing, you know the kind of intimacy and solidarity and community that's built 
in those moments. I take you back to just a couple of weeks ago in my own life as I was sitting across the table from a friend of mine who asked me a hard question. How was vacation with your family and especially your sister who lost her son six months ago and it's the first vacation he's not been on with you guys? How was that? I want to know. I took a deep breath. I didn't start talking. I knew I couldn't get it out. As I tried to get it out, I teared up. And I talked about some of the things that we did, some of the difficulties that we faced, some of the sorrows that we walked through together, some of the scriptures that we read, some of the prayers that we gave. And I look up across the table, and what's he doing but weeping for me? He's weeping for me. And then I felt the freedom to weep. And to be quite honest, he didn't fix anything, but I was pretty healed on the spot. I was pretty healed on the spot. He entered the suffering of another. It's the way of gospel love. It's the way of the incarnation of Christ. It's the way of the cross. We are not a people who say, man, I need to get out of Dodge. We're a people who see the suffering and the sorrow and we move towards it. We inhabit it. We take it up. And we trust the Lord to move in the midst of it. Now let me put this in context. Do you know Daniel saw the judgment of God's people? And that was what he was taking up in his soul. Now let me tell you what that would... Let me give you... Let me help you enter that for just a second. At Thanksgiving this year, you will gather around the table with people in your family who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from His saving mercy, they will spend eternity in hell. What does that do to you? You can see what it does to me. I have a face, I have faces, I have names. And I feel in my soul and in my body that reality. That's bearing the yoke. That's entering the suffering. And there's something heavy about that. And there is something compelling about that. That is freeing to open up our hearts and our mouths and our lives to display the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in any way possible. Paul says, whether it be in my life or in my death. Okay, that's the spirit we're talking about here. A feeling, being gripped by this good grief for those who are around us. And so as you think of the neighbor who you don't, who you know doesn't know the Lord and you just haven't talked to him about the gospel and you haven't even thought about trying and you're scared to. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about here. Lastly, thirdly, do, think, feel, do, do the king's business. It is the daily mission of the gospel call. Now, in the middle of this verse, we read something that's quite astonishing. If you just stop and think about it, we're told that after his sickness, Daniel gets up and he goes about the king's business. 
he gets up and he goes about the king's business. I, I find this fascinating. That he has experienced a devastating vision that sickened him so much that it laid him out for a week. And after that week, he felt compelled to get up and to go about the king's business. To actually give himself, if we can put it this way, to community service. To being a blessing. To being faithful. Now I find that interesting because it would be very... Very easy for Daniel to draw the conclusion, as maybe you would feel like drawing, drawing the conclusion, what's the use? I mean, you've told me about the future. My generation is not going to see it. I've been doing this all along because you've been holding the carrot of deliverance out there for me. And I had a very clear conception of what I thought deliverance looked like. It meant sticking it to Belshazzar pretty quickly. And apparently that's not God's mission. Which meant that Daniel had to see the crashing dream of his hope for deliverance open up into a much larger vision of what God was actually planning to do. He's not going to see the happily ever after. But what we see with Daniel here is that he, after his season of mourning, after his season of overwhelming and appalling vision of God's people and actually experiencing, as it were, the judgment of God and taking up the burden of God's people in his very flesh, we see Daniel get up and go about the king's business. And I believe it is because Daniel knew that ultimate victory is not tied to present success. Ultimate victory is not tied to present success. He's aware that the work we do in the meantime is not in vain. Though, from an earthly standpoint, it will often look that way. Now, I want you to see what he does. He just deconstructs the way we typically view it. As, as good North Americans, doesn't matter if we're Christian or not, we tend to think of the world and we tend to view the world by the bottom line. What am I going to see in the short run? That bottom line might be financial, it might be position, it might be how many likes we got on our post on Facebook. Whatever the bottom line is, it has to be quantifiable, measurable. We have to know it in a fairly short period of time, or we will consider in some way that it will be a failure. The kingdom of God doesn't work that way. And Daniel sees it. He sees that the kingdom of God is a much larger, much wider, much deeper, much more profound, even much more mysterious working kingdom. And that the things that we sometimes go, that was huge and really important in the kingdom of God may have been way down here. And the things that look like they're absolutely nothing are actually the huge advances of the kingdom of God. He has now begun to see the unseen. Now it took him several days in bed to do that. And sometimes it takes us several days in bed to do that. But God is faithful. He's beginning to see that he can quietly and steadily commit to work for a pagan God faithfully and trust the king of kings to be sure that the chips fall where he wants them. It's a really different heart. That's a really different heart. That's a heart full of faith. That's why I love the ambiguity here. He went about the king's business. You, you're kind of tempted to say, which king? What king are we talking about? Are we talking about Belshazzar or are we talking about the king of kings? And I think the answer is yes. 
He saw in his earthly vocation that he was about his master's work. And it didn't have to be a bottom line within his generation or within his bank account or within his increase of position. It had to do with advancing the kingdom of God however he wished to do it under his ultimate aims. As we wait for the Lord, we are called to be fully involved in the community in which we live and not to look at short-term gains as the ultimate kingdom advances. Our enemies are often going to prevail over us, for goodness sakes. We must be involved in the community for its betterment and its progress. We must give ourselves to working everything with all of our heart, not as an eye to man-pleasing, but as an eye to the Lord, as Paul says in Colossians. This means we're going to be involved in the political process. It means we're going to be involved in business and arts. It means we're going to give ourselves to the educational systems according to your varying gifts and callings. But you know what? It's probably going to mean more important things than those. Some of you are thinking, wait, what's more important than that? I don't know, doing the dishes? Praying with your kids at night? Talking to your neighbor? Ordinary faithfulness. Ordinary faithfulness. I heard one of our youth recently say something that their dad often says. I think it's a wise statement. He says, everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to help mom with the dishes. Right? That's the picture here. He went about the king's business. What we do on earth matters to God. And it's not the big things. It's not the big things. It's not the things that that are going to make it on the news. It's the simple, ordinary faithfulness of living by faith and not by sight. Trusting Christ and the kingdom of God that it has a king that will be sure all things turn out the way that He desires and wishes. And He'll use us. And here's the funny thing. He'll actually use the way we mess up to advance His kingdom. Oh, He's just just that good. He's just that good. Now let me tell you, the Lord Jesus Christ knew this better than any of us because wasn't He the one who, who admitted? I don't know the time that I'm returning. There are things I know. There are things I don't know. He willingly laid aside some of his knowledge. He said, I don't, I don't know. That Father knows that. I, I don't know that. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to experience what it was like to know things and live in mystery. And he did that because he loved you. Do you know what? He broke down weeping over Jerusalem when he saw the unbelief. He entered into the brokenness. And he let it shatter his heart and his soul. And he didn't stay on the margins. And he was always about doing the king's business. It was his meat and it was his drink to do the will of his father. So here's the encouragement. Is I hope that you're inspired to go do the things that God has called you to do. And I hope that when you fail, because you will, like me, that we'll look to Christ the author and the perfecter of our faith. The one who uses even our our mess-ups as means to advance his kingdom. Yes, 
He's that good. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would do this. Press this into our truth, to our hearts right now. Press this truth into our lives. Let it not merely be on the page, but let it be inscribed indelibly upon our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.